Nasu. So let's return to this very short, concise, and complete instruction on Shamatha Vedata sign. But now from Penjanabhache, so continuing on from where we left off. So once again, I will just read it first, give a bit of an explanation, and then we'll go on to the guided meditation. But in this way, once again, you can see the material itself directly from the 17th century and through this oral lineage uh, since then, and then my interpretation of it when we're actually doing the practice. So I'll just pick off from the uh, pick up from the beginning of the paragraph that the last paragraph I began write, reading yesterday morning. So a little bit of review, and then you'll see the, con- the co- continuity. So do not modify the nature of evanescent appearances with thoughts such as hopes and fears, but rest for a while in unwavering meditative equipoise. So we're familiar with that now. And it's something we can do just instantly, and that is just be resting there, present, still, clear. And he adds, this is not a state in which your attention is blanked out as if you had fainted or fallen asleep. So again, the, the crucial point here is not that you don't have any concepts, uh, that you simply have a blank mind. That's not, the, that's not the central point. The central point is a stillness, a looseness, a cognizance in which thoughts may come and go, but you're resting in a non-conceptual mode of awareness. But the fact that it's still, it's clear, it's relaxed, and it's cognizant, that's a really crucial point. So rather, rather than just having your attention blanked out, rather post the sentry. Again, the sentry is like a lookout, something quite vigilant, very attentive. Post the sentry of undistracted mindfulness and focus introspection on the movements of awareness. So again, like the teachings of Lera Blingba, like Padmasambhava, just every single sentence is just loaded. This is a high-density, high-density explanation here. Focus introspection on the movements of awareness. Well, we know what moves awareness. It's grasping, where awareness kind of goes out from its throne, out from its own place, grasp onto, attends to, is often carried away by, abducted by, especially thoughts, rumination, and so forth. But also sometimes it's caught, it's snagged by a sound, a tactile sensation, and so forth. So it is this meta-awareness that's monitoring the movements of, aware, uh, movements of the attention. Right? And then we know what to do when we, when we see it straying and so forth, or when we see it spacing out. Now, in terms of the focus of mindfulness, we always, this is something always crucial to memorize, right? And set in the mindfulness of breathing, to know in any of those three methods, to have very clearly, just so sharp, succinct, and accurate, what is the object of mindfulness? You must know that, otherwise it all gets fuzzy. Everything gets fuzzy. So I won't reiterate, but you know what they are. For mindfulness of breathing, now I know you all know, in settling the mind in its natural state, you know what the object of uh, of mindfulness is, what you're really attending to. And now he says in one short sentence, what are you attending to? What's the focus of your attention when you're engaging in this practice? He says, focus that is, in terms of the awareness, he said, focus on its nature of cognizance and luminosity. The nature of awareness being cognizance and luminosity, observing it nakedly. So very succinctly stated. And that is, this is what we're attending to. This is what we're interested in. The sheer cognizance, the sheer luminosity of our own awareness. 
that we're experiencing, that we're observing nakedly, and nakedly, again, unclothed with conceptual elaboration, cogitation, association, imagery, and so forth. Just strip it down naked. And there you are, an unmediated experience of just being aware. Okay? Whatever thoughts arise. Now, we, we read that much yesterday morning, and now we'll move on. I'm just going to finish this paragraph. We'll have one more paragraph for tomorrow morning. And so, whatever thoughts arise, recognize each one. So, there's one strategy. He's going to give two strategies here. Okay? So, there you are, just resting on your throne, awareness resting in its own place, self-cognizant, self-knowing, self-illuminating. Then, of course, thoughts come up. Why wouldn't they? We have such an enormous amount of habit for that. And so, when a thought comes up, as you sit there re- motionlessly, as you rest motionlessly, in awareness, resting in its own place, and a thought comes up. Simply take note of it. Of course, without grasping, without being carried away by it. Just take note of it. And then just let it dissolve of its own accord. Right? Like a door-to-door salesman that comes to your door. Don't go out and greet them. Don't go out and start bartering. Just knock, 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 and you're aware. I'm sure he's going to go away sooner or later. And he will. He's not going to pitch a tent there and kind of camp in your front yard. And so many door-to-door salesmen come, right? And so just whatever they do, they go knock, knock, knock. And don't say, who's there? <laughs> knock, knock, who's there? You blew it. <laughs> just knock, knock. That's the end of the joke. <laughs> Nothing more. Just you're aware of it. And that's one way of dealing with it. Whatever comes up, you just simply note it. But you note it from your throne. You note it from awareness resting in its own place without anything further. So there's one strategy. Very simple. Okay? But here's another one. He says, alternatively, like a participant in a duel, cut off, completely cut off any thoughts as soon as they arise. Completely cut off any thoughts as soon as they arise. So there are two metaphors that capture this, and it comes, I think it's probably in the commentary, because I remember very vividly when Geshe Raptan was teaching us this 37 years ago. Um, two lovely metaphors. I'll share, share both of them with you right now. And they both, as a metaphor, they capture the spirit of these two methods. Right? And so the first of these uh, is, the, is the metaphor or the parable of the navigator and the raven. Good, good to have a little shorthand, little name. So, the navigator and the raven. And so in olden times, so this is, could be 2,000, even more years ago, many, many years ago, in ancient India, they were quite a seafaring race. They, they, uh, Indian merchants and so forth traveled to the Near East. They made their way to Egypt and so forth. To, um, they were t- trading back at the time of the Buddha. There was a lot of back and forth. And so they were quite some sailors back then, uh, which means they would go far out of sight of, far out of, sight of land. Who knows where else they explored? I don't really know. But they didn't have our navigation charts and all of that. And so when a, when a navigator was far out to sea and wasn't really quite sure, and maybe they're, they're running, they're, their supplies are running short, and the navigator really did know, need to know where's the nearest land. We need more water, we need more food, and so forth. But they didn't have the charts and so forth, and so he doesn't really know where he is. They just water, water everywhere, right? And so what the navigators would do at this time, and I think this is all true, uh, the navigators would, before they set sail, they would 
capture some ravens, some ravens, keeping them in their cage until they needed them. And then when they're far out to sea and they really needed to know where the nearest land is, then they would release one of the ravens. Just, just let it go into the sky. Now, it's very important that they chose ravens and not ducks. Because a raven has no webbed feet. And so if a raven lands in the water, the raven will drown. And the raven knows that. And so the raven, probably having been in these very cramped quarters for who knows, days or weeks, finally is released from his cage. It's one very happy raven. And then until it goes out and says, oh, man. <laughs> I go, oh, oh, crap. <laughs> like there's, there's water, water everywhere. This is not home. Where am I? Where am I? You know? And so the raven then wants exactly what the navigator wants. The raven wants dry land. And the raven just, you know, hovering, flying up maybe 20, 30 feet above the mast of the ship isn't seeing any dry land. And so what does the raven do? Well, they're pretty smart birds. And the raven then doesn't just say, well, any, meeny, miny, mo, I'm feeling lucky, let's go east. Doesn't do that. You know, they're smarter than that, right? The raven wants to have a good chance that when it starts going in a certain direction, then that's actually where the land is. So what does a smart raven do? Flies straight up into the sky, circling, circling, going higher and higher and higher, higher and higher, until eventually the raven desperately hopes from a, you know, maybe even a mile up, who knows, maybe even higher, sees some land. And then as soon as the raven sees the land, pew, then it, like an arrow, is heading off to the land. Smart raven. Well, it's also a smart navigator. Because what's the navigator doing while the raven is going up and up and up and up? The navigator is not taking out his bow and arrow to, you know, skeet, shoot down a raven. He's just watching it. But he's also not letting his mind be distracted. So he's not grasping the raven with an arrow. He's not letting his mind become distracted because when that raven goes very high, he might lose, lose track of it. And then the whole thing is wasted. So he's going to be watching that raven very passively as he flies higher and higher and higher. But in this case scenario, in this parable, we have one very discouraged raven because as high as he flies, circling higher and higher and higher, there in fact is no land in sight. So the raven's got two choices. He can either commit suicide and just fly off until he gets tired and then just goes into the sea and drowns. Or he can go to the best facsimile of land anywhere nearby, which he doesn't really want at all, but that's the other option. And that is he can just sail right back, you know, glide right back and land on the boat again. At least it's dry land. He won't, dry, he won't drown. Well, in this scenario, there is no dry land for the time being. So the raven does the smart thing. He went up smart, and he comes down smart, and eventually, sooner or later, having no place else to go, the raven lands back on the ship. Okay? Nice metaphor, isn't it? So here it is, and that is you're resting. You're like the navigator sitting on your ship, resting on your ship, and a thought flies up. And sometimes it may go on and on, but without grasping to it, without identifying with it, without hoping or fearing, without desire or aversion, you simply watch that chain of thought, that string of thought coming up until eventually having no place else to go, the thought dissolves right back from whence it came. It came from the space of the mind, it spirals around for a while, and then it dissolves right back into the space of the mind, like the raven landing back on the shore. Okay? So it's, that, it's very attentive, but it's very relaxed very non-reactive, 
simply observing the whole flight of the thought, playing itself out, dissolving back in the space of the mind. The more relaxed you get, then the more that actually turns, to be tr turns out to be true. When you're starting the practice, this practice of observing the thoughts and so forth, then I'll go ahead and, since we want a complete set, there's a third, uh, there's a third one. I haven't given the second one. I'm going to go to the third one. And that is when we're starting out in such practice of observing thoughts, memories, and so forth, the intensity of our focus on the thoughts and memories tends to be so strong that simply by observing them, many of you have already found this out, simply by observing thoughts, they just dissolve right there. Again, it's like trying to observe snowflakes through a magnifying glass with the sun beaming right over your shoulder. And as soon as you get, get them in the magnifying glass, you know, the, the light from the sun just melts them. As soon as you see them, they just melt it. And so in a similar fashion, well, the metaphor here is that of a bashful maiden. Bashful, everybody knows, maiden, young woman. And so in, in the parable, these are all from classical India, at least a thousand years ago. It's a bashful maiden uh, just walking by herself across the, let's say, the village courtyard, minding your own business. But she's a lovely young woman. And we have this player, you know, a young ladies' man. And he's kind of out, hanging out there, seeing who cruises by. And he sees this young lady walking by, and suddenly his interest is intensely aroused, and he ogles her. That is, he's, he's piercing her with his eyes. He really, like that. Oh, oh, you know, whatever they do, I don't know. It's been a long time. <laughs> but he ogles with, with an intense interest, intense gaze. And she, being the bashful maiden that she is, feeling the intensity of his interest and his gaze upon her, she quickly disappears. So in a similar fashion, the thoughts just vanish upon this intense scrutiny. We weren't really intending to be so intense, but that's just what happens. So that ladies' man, he has to be much more clever, much more debonair, a bit casual, nonchalant, and kind of like gaze out of the corner of his eye. <laughs> it's a terrible imitation, isn't it? Um, but you get the idea. And so in a similar fashion as you're observing thoughts and images, very gently, very softly, as if, don't mind me, don't mind me. I'm hardly here at all. But see if you can touch them very softly so you're aware of them with as little impact as possible. In this system, like in, quantum, like in quantum mechanics, it is an integrated system. Your observation will have an impact on what you're observing, but it can be a lighter impact, a softer impact, and not just crushing them as soon as you see them. So that's, those are two metaphors. And now the third one, when he says, and let's now let's go back and quote him, uh, alternative, like a participant in a duel, completely cut off any thoughts as soon as they arise. Uh, here's one more third parable. And this, this is a duel now between a swordsman and an archer. Swordsman and an archer. Right? And they're, it's kind of a one-sided duel, frankly. Because let's imagine they're, they're standing 50 paces apart. Right? So some distance. And the archer has a whole quiver of arrows. And the swordsman has just his sword, but it's one of those very, very slender swords that you can move, move really quickly, not a broadsword like William Wallace had, you know, as tall as he was. It's one of those fencing swords. And so the, the duel is kind of a one-sided duel, really, because the person who's the attacker is the archer. And the archer sees the, the swordsman over yonder, and he takes out an arrow out of his quiver. He pulls it back. And then whenever he feels like it, and not regularly, systematically, but just whenever he feels maybe there's an opening, then he lets fly the arrow. And the swordsman 
is very vigilant from moment to moment. His eyes, his attention unwavering. And as soon as he sees that the arrow is in flight, he prepares and flicks it away at the last moment. He just flicks it, deflects it. Right? But then he's ready. Maybe the next arrow is already coming. He's ready to deflect that one. Maybe it will be five seconds before the next arrow comes. But there he is until the quiver is empty. He's always right there, ready to deflect the arrow just before it strikes him. Just and knock it away, knock it away. So that's what he's talking about. This duel, the duel between, what did he call it? I've already forgotten the words. The duel simply, yeah, the, uh, so a participant in a duel. Well, that's it. You completely cut them off. So just as the, as the swordsman is completely cutting off, deflecting the arrows before they strike, before they get him, right? In a similar fashion, as soon as the thought comes up, you're so precisely there in the moment, so attentive, and yet, and here, of course, is the great challenge, totally relaxed. If you're tense, I would suggest also if that swordsman is tense, he's going to be rigid and he'll probably get skewered. He has to be very, very relaxed, at the same time extremely attentive and hovering in the immediacy of the present moment. So as soon as a thought arises, as soon as you see it there, you don't bring out a broadsword and go and knock, you know, lop off its head. You just, you just deflect it. As soon as it comes up, just right there. Very so simple. Small effort, but like with your finger, like that. Just knock it out. So those are the two methods. One a bit more passive. The other one very subtle, but a bit more active. When there is, and so, just a little bit more, but this is very juicy, very quintessential. When there is stillness after they are gone, that is, in those intervals between thoughts, when there is stillness after they are gone, relax loosely, but without losing mindfulness. As it is said, focus closely and relax loosely. And that way the mind is settled. Doesn't this sound familiar? You're supposed to nod. Coming, and again, we're we're going across centuries here. That's what I find so interesting. We're going from centuries, from Padmasambhava, Kama Lingba, from led up Lingba, the 19th century, and here in the 17th century. It's the same message. I mean, it's just the same message, the same method, carrying through century after century. It's quite remarkable. It looks like it worked, so there's no need to tweak it, to mess with it. So finally, he says, with relax without wandering. As the saying goes, when the mind is tangled up in activity, when the mind that is tangled up in, ac- in activity loosens up, it undoubtedly frees itself. So this is that theme of rangdel, the self-release. Self-release. Okay? And it comes through loosening up. So it is. So it is. So please find a comfortable position. And now I can use much fewer words as we venture into the practice itself.
Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state. Then let's practice the ninefold expulsion of stale energy or air. Again, we begin by blocking the right nostril, inhaling through the left. <coughs> I think you remember the left, so that just starts us out. Right index finger coming up to the right septum, inhaling. Continue three times, three times, and then three times through both nostrils. Then if you wish, you may take refuge, cultivate bodhicitta, and practice guru yoga according to your ability.
with your eyes at least partially open, rest your awareness evenly in the space in front of you, without attending to any object, without doing anything. As you rest your awareness in the present moment, without deliberately focusing on any object, either sensory or mental, then the sheer reality of your own awareness may more and more clearly dawn upon you. Rest in that flow of knowing, of the experience of of cognizance, and the sheer luminosity of awareness itself, which makes manifest all appearance. Release all hope and fear. Release even the desire that the meditation will turn out one way and the anxiety that it may turn out another way. Release it all. Let your awareness utterly at ease, free of grasping. while monitoring the flow of mindfulness with introspection, noting when your awareness moves, and releasing, gently releasing, whatever captivated and took it away.
then experiment with these two methods of responding to the rumination that breaks the flow of non-conceptual awareness. Try, first of all, this method of simply noting them, but without reacting in any way, without trying to do anything to them, without moving. Simply note the occurrence of thoughts, images, any other activities of the mind. While letting your body remain as still as a mountain, your awareness as still as space. And simply allow these thoughts and images to dissolve of their own accord without intervention. As soon as the thought has passed, relax deeply.
this practice appears difficult only insofar as you view it from the perspective of the conceptual mind. Thinking, oh, this is hard to do for 24 minutes. How long do I need to do this? As soon as you're caught up in cogitation from that perspective, it's difficult. But as soon as you release that and rest in the immediacy of the present moment, what could be easier? Since after all, you've come to this awareness by a process of subtraction, not addition, by doing less rather than more. Now for the remaining minutes of the session, let's practice that alternate response with the tiniest bit of effort, just a flick, as soon as a thought or image arises, before it takes over the mind. Nip it in the bud. Cut it off quickly. And return to that non-conceptual flow of awareness of awareness. Let's continue practicing now in silence.
Molasso. So there are a couple of questions here. One single question, the other one a whole series of questions. Uh, but to return briefly to the one from last night from Rob, uh, just to re read it again in the Three Principal Aspects of the Path by Tsongkhaba. It's, it's an extraordinary classic, very, very concise. Uh, I won't elaborate, but it's a very well-known text. He writes when it, in his discussion of realization of emptiness that appearances clear away the extreme of existence. And Rob asks, is this the same, as, the same meaning as when Padmasambhava says things appear but are non-existent? So I, I mentioned just very briefly last night, no. So coming to the first one, appearances clear away the extreme of existence. Tsongkhapa is known for his extremely lucid and insightful writings on the relationship between dependent origination or the manner in which phenomena arise as dependently related events, right? on the one hand, and the manner in which all phenomena are empty of inherent nature, and showing that these are actually two sides of the same coin. Now, in meditation, though, when, it, when one engages in this type of ontological probe, so I was, it was, remember I was referring to Maria Elena, and probing in, so okay, where is, the, where is that Maria Elena? from her own side, who's really there, who exists objectively by her own nature, and here's the crucial point, prior to and independent of her own or anybody else's conceptual designation. In other words, absolutely really there, for which the concepts and the labels are just like a little feather landing on a rock, but the rock was totally there already, right? And so when one looks for that Maria Elena, that individual, that person, that self, that has the body, has the mind. Well, of course, you don't find it. It's, it's not in the body, any body part. It's not in the whole collection of the body. It's not the brain. It's not neurons, a whole bunch of neurons. None of those are a person. But neither are emotions, thoughts, perceptions, memories, or any other mental process, nor is consciousness a person. She's the one that has consciousness. She's the one that has all those mental processes, has a body, has two arms, and so forth. But where is this person? Where is that person? who has all those attributes, who, and who does all those things, right? So clearly, the, she's the agent, and this is an enormously important fact that is completely muffled, stifled by modern science, by modern neuroscience. I think it's totally catastrophic, really, utterly catastrophic. Number one, it's false, but number two, it's really catastrophic. When we're seeing in the literature now more and more often, I mean, it's kind of like standard now, that if we're referring to Maria Elena, She's not referred to as the agent anymore. She doesn't think. She doesn't remember. She doesn't do anything. It's her brain that's doing everything. And so there's this total reification of the brain, and the brain now is the agent, and Maria Elena is just kind of some fluff. You know, This is really catastrophic because it's so dehumanizing. A brain is an organ. It's made of chemicals and electricity only. There's nothing in There's no mystical substances. It's just chemical, and albeit, of course, in very sophisticated and complex interactions and so forth, but let's not get mystical here and mystifying the brain by thinking, oh, there's something more than chemicals and electricity, because that's all there is. And of course, the brain operates just according to the laws of physics. So it's really, I, I don't see why people don't follow out the implications of this catastrophic move of no longer referring to people as agents, but saying the brain is the agent. Because the brain is just physical entity that operates according to the laws of physics, which means she's not making any choices at all. She's an automaton, if that's true. So that's really catastrophic and delusional. But moving back, right back, to the investigation and emptiness, then we come upon this not finding. 
not finding. So on the surface level, totally superficial, so, ah, neuroscience and Buddhism, the same. They both look for the person, neither one finds it. Wow, isn't that cool? The neuroscientists have realized emptiness. No, they haven't. They've realized nihilism. Not the same thing. And that's the danger in Buddhist meditative practice, in this Vipassana, that you're probing in upon Marielan, of course, anybody else, of course, yourself. You say, okay, who am I? Who am I? I'm not this, I'm, I'm not, 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 and then, oh, I'm nowhere to be found. I'm not in the body, the mind. I'm not found outside of the body. I think that does it. I don't exist at all. In which case, in Buddhist practice, you can slip right into nihilism, right? So the very notion of your being an agent, of I being an agent, who does things, who is influenced by my environment, other people, and I, in turn, have influence on the environment, other people. That gets lost. And it's just slipping into, I don't exist at all, which means I don't do anything and nothing influences me. Until you, you stumble and you, you, you stub your toe and say, wow, that hurt. How does that fit in? How, how can that hurt? Because I don't exist. So this is the tendency, that when we probe inwards, this in ontological probe, we come up with nothing, and it seems to, to kind of dismiss appearances until they come and smack us in the face by stubbing the toe, for example. And so then we come back to appearances. We come out of meditation. They say, oh, there's Marilena. I come over and give her a big hug. Oh, there she is. Oh, good. I, I thought you weren't there. She hugged me right back. Oh, nice to see you, Marilena. Oh, you're, you're, thank goodness. I thought you'd disappeared there for a moment. You know? So we're right back to, as soon as we're back to appearances, oh, now she's really there. Okay, so we reify her all over again, grasping onto her as if she's really there inherently from her own side. Right? So this, in the beginning phases of the practice, when you probe in, you fall into nihilism. When you come to appearances, then you fall into reification, into the extreme of existence, inherent, inherent existence. What Songoba is getting at here, as, okay, as you're, remember, the, the way to find the middle way is to bounce off the extremes until you're bouncing less and less and less, right? And so as you keep on going in and you, taste, you get a little taste of nihilism and you get a taste of substantialism or metaphysical realism, grasping onto everything as, as if it's absolutely there, and you're bouncing off those, and you're coming slowly, slowly down that central path, that middle way, that centrist path. When you really start to get it, then Tsongkhapa, in this one line, it's incredibly dense text, but Buddhists are really good at that. The great, great adepts are incredibly good at this. When you really start getting some deep insight, then by, just by the sheer fact of attending closely to appearances and see how they're constantly shifting, they're constantly in a state of flux. They're constantly arising and passing, independence upon prior causes and conditions. There they are arising, independence upon their own constituent parts. There they are arising, independence upon conceptual designation. This ongoing entanglement. You see, whoa. They couldn't possibly exist by their own nature. Because look how they are. And that's how, by examining appearances, what does he say? the extreme of existence is cleared away. Your grasping onto inherent existence is cleared away just by gaining very deep insight into the nature of the appearances themselves. Because all phenomena arise as dependent related events, therefore, they're empty of inherent nature. And then the, 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 verse, the line that goes right together with this is, as you gain that deeper insight and you're probing into, you're returning that probing into the analysis of whole and part and so forth, and then that not finding, he says then similarly, the more deeply you realize the very absence of inherent nature phenomena, 
that actually clears away the extreme of nihilism, of non-existence. Because right? it's not that it doesn't exist at all, but it doesn't exist from its own side inherently, by its own intrinsic nature. So it's quite brilliant. I mean, Sokov is, takes my breath away. Incredibly brilliant. But now Padmasambhava's approach is different. It's, it's, I, I'm going to use a cliche here. But Tsongkhapa, what we see is this incredible intelligence. I, I have studied him, you know, all, you know, not continuously, but for, gosh, more than 40 years now. And just the, the magnitude of his sheer intelligence, I find really amazing. So by the sheer power of intelligence, he's, he's taking this theme of Madhyamaka philosophy, and he said, man, that's awesome. It's just awesome. The power of his intelligence, the reasoning, the, reasoning, the incisiveness of his logic, the penetration of his intellect. Utterly awesome. And this is then, you wrestle with this out on the debating courtyard. And it takes you right to a realization of emptiness. It, it's, it starts with the intelligence, for sure, but it transcends the intelligence. He's not just on an intellectual trip. He was a great adept, great accomplished meditation master. And so he's using, using the power of prajna, of intelligence hyphen wisdom. And what's Padmasambhava doing? He's not known for being a great debater and scholar. He didn't teach in one of the great monastic universities of, of India and so forth. He's known as being a Dzogchen adept, an accomplished, realized Dzogchen master. And his approach is primordial consciousness, intuition. Of just this abrupt, again, it's much more like Chan or like Zen. This, just this insistence, there's only one thing to do here, folks, and that's wake up. I'm going to wake you up. That's all that matters. Become lucid. You know, there's a whole bunch of cool things you can do in your non-lucid dream, all kinds of things. You can serve humanity, you can help the poor, and all kinds of things. You can develop shama to develop six perfections, stage regeneration, completion. There's a whole ton of things you can do. But you know, when all is said and done, the most important thing to do is just wake up and then do everything from the perspective of having become lucid. But really, aren't you fed up with being non-lucid? Wake up and then use that as a platform for everything else. So in this kind of existential shock therapy or ontological shock therapy, he just comes and said, you know all these appearances? From my perspective, they don't exist at all. I'm awake, you're not. Wake up. This isn't here at all. These appearances, they appear, sure, of course, but they don't exist. Because when you think exists, you who are non-lucid, you think it's really there from its own side. Well, it's not. Therefore, it doesn't exist at all. Now, we see the metaphor. The metaphor is fantastic. I'm going to just try to, I'm just going to do this one. The series of questions will come later. Uh, but once you've awakened from a dream, like my dream of the cobra the other day, or any dream, once you've awakened from the, and now you're viewing the dream from the perspective of being awake, right? Whereas let's imagine the dream was non-lucid. Now that you're awake, oh, whew, that was a real nightmare. But of course, Everything I experienced there, all the people, the cobra, whatever it was, they don't exist at all. They, there's no place they exist. They didn't exist before. They don't exist now. They don't exist later. They have no existence whatsoever from the perspective of being awake. They were just appearances, empty, intangible, insubstantial, nothing there at all. How could they possibly hurt anybody when they don't exist at all? So from the perspective of being awake, the dream doesn't exist. Just empty appearance. It's just a memory of an empty appearance. And this is what Padmasambhava is trying to do. It's just kind of sh shake us. 
astonish us, shock us by just breaking through and viewing the same reality, but now in the waking state, of course, viewing the same appearances, uh, including of our own identity and all of that, but just breaking through and viewing the same appearances from the perspective of rikpa, from the perspective of being awake, from which perspective this actually is a dream now. This is a dream, right? From the perspective of rikpa. So it's a different strategy. Songava takes you by the hand and takes you from the shallow end of the pool. Shallow end, okay, now start swimming, start swimming. Don't worry, I'm holding on to you, I'm holding on to you. Let's go a little bit deeper. Slowly, slowly, slowly. Okay, well, are you swimming now? Okay, okay, sweetie. Now you can keep on swimming. And Padmasambhava says, hey, you. <laughs> Throws you into the deep end of the pool. You know. Come on, you can swim. Just try. You know? So there we go. A little bit different strategy now. And then his holiness, a person like his holiness, Dalai Lama, he teaches both. He teaches both. Emaho, quite amazing. Oh, yeah. See you this afternoon. Enjoy your day.